Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley. This is a show on the glorious 5x5 network. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Steve Strezza. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mr. Mike Hurley. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Steve, what do you like to be known for these days? Uh, these days, I'm basically doing the indie developer thing. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on my own projects and then working for a number of other companies. So I don't really have a sort of single hat that I sort of wear every, on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, running around doing a number of different apps has been uh, an interesting experience versus just working on one product for one company. Yeah, since the last time we spoke, you've decided to make a move over to independent development. Um, yes. What, what about this? Like, why, why did you want to go and do this? Like, first, how long have you been um, independent for? And what enticed you about going down this route? Well, I started doing the indie thing about just, just about six months ago and started uh, basically working for a number of different companies because uh, I get bored really easily working on the same thing for a long time. And uh, there's just more flexibility in terms of how you can approach projects and uh, what you want to work on and stuff. And you know, having the ability to run around, do a bunch of different things, both for myself and for other companies, has been, has been pretty awesome uh, so far. So, what, you know, when you, you look at it back at it now, like, what was it? Was it that you wanted to be able to stretch your wings a little bit more? Did you just need to throw off the shackles of the man? Like, what is it for you? Is this something that you thought about for a long time? Or was it just you, you woke up one day and was like, I need to be my own guy? Well, it was something that was on my mind for uh, many years. It was kind of the sort of end game of my career when I got started into it was to always kind of move into being a solo developer, working by myself and then working for, you know, other companies uh, as part of that. But it was always kind of something that was on my mind. And it was something that I had been thinking about for a while. And eventually, you know, being in the uh, San Francisco area, you see all of these companies that need uh, basically full-time developers, but they can't find them. There's a huge shortage of developers per the jobs that's available. So from that, like, just approaching it from the perspective of, I can take this work that they want a full-time person for and just do it, you know, as a contractor, actually started to seem possible more so than it did, say, a couple years ago before I had realized all of this. So it had always been kind of in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something that I got serious about until, you know, this past uh, spring when I started really thinking about it more seriously and then, you know, just decided to take the leap on it uh, right around the time iOS 7 came out because I figured there was going to be a lot of companies that needed uh, to update their apps for iOS 7 uh, really quickly. So that was kind of why I jumped in, even though it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, it was, you know, not necessarily the, the plan, but it was just kind of something that I had been thinking about for a very long time. How has it changed your lifestyle going independent as opposed to going into your job every day? Uh, well, to a certain extent, it hasn't changed much because a lot of the clients that I end up working for, they, you know, they want me to work a certain number of hours per week or they want me to work uh, on site with them sometimes, which is actually what I'm doing right now. I'm actually on site with one of my clients. So from that perspective, like it hasn't really changed a whole lot. It's just maybe given me a little bit more flexibility in terms of how I can come to work on projects and like when I want to work on them and in what conditions I want to work on. So uh, from that 
perspective, it's been pretty straightforward. If anything, it's gotten a little bit less uh, chaotic in the sense that like you're not running around all the time trying to put out startup fires. You're not, you know, burning the the midnight oil trying to get that last little feature in for that l- big release that you've got coming out next week. Uh, that kind of stuff has has settled down and it's become actually a lot more straightforward and a lot easier to just manage all of that. What um, have some of the challenges been so far for you? Well, at the start, uh, getting your foot in the door, um, getting those first you know couple gigs going, that is that definitely was something I wasn't expecting to be easy, and it it took a little while before I got comfortable with like talking to companies and approaching them and saying you know I will do this work for you, but from that perspective, it's not been terribly difficult. Um, I would say more of the challenge has been in just like keeping up with it and constantly looking at, you know, how to how to keep in touch with people who you haven't talked to in a while and, and sort of keep them, uh, keep yourself on their minds so that when they need something done, they can call you as opposed to call someone else. And then maybe the other thing is just like keeping track of all of like the business side of it, because there is a business kind of component to it. you got to manage your own accounting, you got to deal with taxes, which has become uh, another weird area that I wasn't expecting. And there's, you know, all these different like weird little things that come with, you you kind of have to approach it like running a, a small business. You have to keep track of all of this stuff that you wouldn't necessarily associate with just strictly being a developer. So maybe from that perspective, it's been a little bit more challenging, but you know, otherwise it's been, it's been pretty easy. One of the first, um, apps and projects that you released after going independent, if I've got the timeline correct, was Oh Hi, right? That's right. Now, um, I'll see if I can give an overview. I'm sure you do a better job than me, but Oh Hi is like like a journaling application that uses the app.net API and and your app.net account to store information like places and photos, and you can save like little diary entries and stuff, and then you can share it out to other social networks, right? Is that in a nutshell what Oh Hi is? Yeah, that's that's basically it. I, I wanted to, uh, well, if we go back a couple of years, I had this idea for just a simple little location check-in app that would keep track of where you've been for yourself. Like at the time, Foursquare and then Gowalla, which uh, is no longer with us, uh, and some other services had popped up that basically wanted to turn location check-ins into a game. And you know, maybe back in what, 2007, 2008, when those were getting off the ground and nobody knew what a location check-in was, uh, you know, that stuff made sense. Because everybody kind of understands, you know, if you check into a place, that means you're kind of saving a record of where you've been. And you don't necessarily need to, if, if you're starting fresh, you don't necessarily need to build that into something uh, that you're going to use for location check-ins. I wanted just a simple little app that would keep track of the places that I've been so that I could, you know, refer to them later. You know, if I go on a trip to Seattle and I go to a bunch of cool restaurants, uh, I want to keep track of that. I want to know where that where, where I went. So I started thinking about this probably about two or three years ago, just a simple little app to track locations. Uh, but the the trouble at the time was that there wasn't really a good database of places like locations and businesses and all that that you could just use. They were all really expensive. They required you know thousands of dollars a month to license from one of these vendors that would then give you access to it. And that was you know for a small developer kind of hobby project, way out of the reach of possibility. So 
Um, I was using Path to do this for a little while, and that was good, but Path has had, as, as we all know, has had some issues with uh, privacy and security and some of these other things that were really not appealing. And after a while, uh, it became clear that they weren't really keeping a good track on that. Like, it was back in, what was it, March, when they had that texting scandal where, yeah. you know, they had they would suck up your address book into the cloud and then they would text message all of your friends to join path or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, and that was like the second or third time they had been in the news for doing something stupid with people's, uh, you know, personal data. And so right around that time, app.net had launched their places database like a couple months earlier. And they had also launched their private messaging, uh, solution, solution, uh, which, allowed for more flexible uh, more flexible data storage channels to exist than just strictly private messaging on Twitter or chat or group chat or something like that. It was actually uh, a really interesting solution where you could create these uh, channels of data that were you could control who accessed them. You could control who read them and who wrote into them. So. I saw an opportunity there to do something maybe a little different. Instead of just using those as a way to communicate between people, maybe you could use that as just a storage mechanism up in the cloud that only you had access to. And then at the same time, they had licensed a places database from Factual, uh, which is you know, okay. Uh, it's not the greatest places database in the world, but it does the job. So I basically, in a weekend, prototyped a simple app that, you know, checked you into a place uh, and let it uh, stored it up on app.net and you know I I built it in a weekend so that I could go see uh, what was it Iron Man 3 or something like that like I wanted to check into that uh, so I built that and it worked really well and I just kept going with it until I came up with this really cool little journal app that you know I I, I use it pretty regularly and I know a lot of people use it pretty regularly too which is pretty good was this your first app in the App Store? It was my first personal app uh, in the iOS App Store. There was one app that I did for the Mac App Store when it launched, which was a to-do to list app called Too Delicious. And that was, the, that was on the Mac, and this is my first time building something separate for the iOS App Store. What was your experience with your first app? How, I mean, how did you find that, your first app in the iOS App Store? Well, I had been building the uh, building apps like for Pocket sure. and stuff. So, from that perspective, like it was it was pretty well known where you had to spend your time, and there was a lot of time that gets spent at the very end doing things like you know QA and getting all the website stuff and everything ready to go. And you know, I've had some experience doing that for other companies, so I was pretty well prepared for it. But you know, you never quite prepared for it at the very end when you're getting ready to release the thing and you've got a thousand tiny little things that have to get done before you can fully pull the trigger and actually let people have it. So, you know, it's always it's always a surprise how much there is still left to do at the very end and, you know, you got to kind of figure out what do you really need to do to ship, what do you need to just kind of cast aside and worry about, you know, in the next update or what you need to do, you know, the day after you launch and stuff like that. It's not so much that it was anything Surprising, but it was just time-consuming, and you're never quite fully prepared for it. So, 
What's been yeah. the, the biggest thing that you've learned from from developing and releasing Ohi that's helped you continue along this path of independent development? The biggest thing I've learned, I would probably say that the market of people who are willing to pay for an app still is is getting is getting smaller and smaller. Um, the the days of 2008 or the days on the Mac when you could just you know sell an app for a couple bucks and and people would find it and buy it and convince all of their friends to buy it I think those days are pretty quickly coming to an end so you know that's that's a little bleak sounding but in the same sense it's kind of liberating in the sense that you can think about alternate ways to uh, build apps and monetize apps besides just selling them up, up front and. It is kind of a bummer that that isn't necessarily the case anymore. You, it's difficult to sell an app, um, but you know you you got to take it what, for what it is. You can't just whitewash it and say you know this won't happen to me. I, I I'll be able to sell my app and people will buy it. Uh, to an extent that is true, but I haven't found necessarily that that's going to be the way forward uh, as we go into 2014 and into the future of the app store. So. While that may sound like uh, bad news, it's kind of good news if you can get ahead of it and start thinking about different ways of making, you know, free freemium apps. And if you can figure out ways of smartly monetizing using in-app purchase or advertising, uh, that kind of stuff. That stuff has been successful for a reason. It's because people want the free apps and they'll be willing to pay you for them after they've used them for a while. So thinking about the future of where I'm going to be doing development for the consumer market has been very focused on like just taking that idea of how do you how do you build a free app that makes a lot of money and figuring out ways of doing that smartly. But just moving into new business models again, I think. Yeah, new business models and just new ways of thinking about how you're going to uh, work with the customer to get them. To, to keep them happy and to keep them using your app and to translate that into money for you. So I want to take a quick break, but I've got a bunch more stuff that I want to talk to you about today, sir. So I want to take a quick moment to thank our first sponsor, and that is the fine folks over at Squarespace. They are the all-in-one platform that make it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALLYHO1. Squarespace are always doing great work. They're working really hard to continue updating their platform with new features, designs, and support. They have been releasing new features just over the last couple of weeks. Um, I've been speaking about some of the new stuff that they've been doing, their new iOS apps, for example. But they've just relaunched their page building system called Layout Engine, and they've made it a lot easier to understand and a lot easier to sort of add content to your website. So as you go around and you're using their WYSIWYG page building tools to add blocks of content like text, markdown, images, and all that fun stuff, you can, in a much more easy and fluid way or within your web browser, add all of this content in and drag and drop them around the page, resize things all on the fly. It's very, very easy easy to do and you can see how it's going to look exactly on your web page before you publish which is awesome. Squarespace have really fantastic templates that you can get started with for these pages and they have tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. They take care of hosting, SEO and even make sure that your site looks fantastic on any device. It's really easy to use but if you need any help they have over 70 dedicated employees on their customer care team that are based in New York City. They really care about design this shows throughout their entire site from the front to the back and to these templates that I just mentioned shortly ago. They have some brand new iOS apps 
for Squarespace customers. They have Squarespace Blog, which lets you post and manage your site on the go. They also have Squarespace Metric, which is metric, sorry, which is a great way for you to monitor the analytics of your website, get charts and projections for your visitors and all of that fun stuff. As I mentioned, Squarespace can be given to you for free on a trial basis. They have an absolutely free trial, no credit card needed. You just go sign up over at squarespace.com. And then when you decide to purchase, their plans start at just $8 a month and they include a domain name if you sign up for a year. And don't forget that you'll get 10% off and help support this show if you use the code TALLYHO1. That's T-A-L-L-Y-H-O and the number one. Thank you so much to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. So, Mr. Trezor, I believe you worked on an app Excuse me, called Shots of Me. Is that correct? correct? What is Shots of Me? So Shots of Me is a photo sharing network for selfies. Um, (laughs) It's basically a way of just, you know, taking a picture of yourself and putting it up for your friends to see. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. And uh, we, uh, I've been, that's one of my client apps. I've been working with them since about, what, September or October, something like that. And the first version came out uh, in the middle of November. And I've been working on that since, and it's going really well. It's interesting, this project, right? My understanding from reading TechCrunch is that it was uh, that Justin Bieber was sort of helped back from a venture perspective, this app, right? Yeah, he's, uh, he's an investor in the app, and um, it's, it's funny because uh, there have been times when I got a call at uh, you know, noon on a Sunday going, you know, Justin Bieber just posted a selfie in this app and the app is crashing. Can you figure out why? Oh, wow. Um, so that's, that's been a bit of a trip. I haven't quite experienced anything like that before, but uh, he's, he's been uh, involved in that since, since before I got started. And, you know, he's actually been really good uh, asset for it. So they got the Bieber effect, you know? Yeah. He's uh, posted a few times through the app and uh, sent them to Twitter and stuff. And it's just interesting watching the app react. Every time you pull the refresh, another, you know, 2,000 likes come in on the photo. So, you know, like it's it's very interesting watching that effect happen in real time. And like I said, there's not, nothing I've ever worked on that's quite had a reaction that his fans give something. What's your involvement in the app? What have you worked on? Are you, if you're allowed to say, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, so I uh, – there there. Before this app existed, there was uh, a previous version of the app called Rock Live. I believe it was called Rock Live. And the, uh, the app existed, but it looked very much like what Instagram used to look like pre-iOS 7. It was uh, you know, very much like framed photos and videos and stuff. And I came in about, I want to say, six months or so into this project and basically took it over and uh, worked with uh, Pacific Helm to do some of the design stuff. There was a lot of it that was already there, but you know, I came in to kind of help execute the last little bits of it and get it, over, get it over the hump to the point where it could actually be released. And I've been basically the lead iOS developer on it for the last four months or so on it. That's quite cool. So you, mm-hmm. did you make the choice for Pacific Helm? They were the guys that you wanted to work with. Uh, actually, no. That was de- uh, that was decided before I got there. They, uh, if you haven't used the app, it's got all these really nice blurring effects and parallax effects that go on as you're scrolling through the list, and that was all their idea. And you know, I was really it, like, I came into a lot of that stuff already existing, and I just helped you know polish the last bits of it and get it out the door. But they had decided on Pacific Helm uh, well before my involvement. 
So how do you discover and find these projects to work on? Do you have people, I mean, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but do you have um, ways in which you find new projects? Do you approach companies that you're interested in working in and seeing if they have any space? Sometimes. Uh, there's, like, I'm very fortunate. I've got a large network of friends and people who are either running their own startups or they're working for companies that are in early stage startup mode and uh they typically will refer me if they feel like I can help them out. Uh, sometimes what I'll do is I will actually go to companies that are looking for full-time iOS developers, uh, especially here in the Bay Area and especially ones that have recently raised money because they huh. have a big pile of money that they got from investors that they are waiting to turn into a product. And like I said, like it's really, really hard to find full-time engineers out here. You're rec like if you work at a startup and you're trying to hire, you're recruiting constantly, and that's a big expenditure of time. And companies would rather, you know, make companies out here would prefer to just, you know, throw some money at a problem and make it go away. So what I've typically done, if I if I'm not being contacted by a company, is I will go to companies that are looking for full-time developers. And I will basically say, hey, I will do that job that you wanted a full-time developer to do, but I'll do it on contract. And if this works out, you can you know, keep me on contract. If you guys find somebody to do iOS development and you want me to help transition them, uh, transition that person into the project and you know, eventually my involvement will end or I'll become more of a support role, that's fine too. And uh, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the time, a company will bite at that, but you only need a couple of gigs to actually have a you know successful, you know have enough money to pay the bills and 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 do all that stuff. So it's been interesting. Like I come at it from two approaches. One is you know companies will approach me, or they'll re I'll get referrals from people, uh, or I will just approach companies looking for full time people, and just say I will do your job for you. <laughs> so it's like I like it. You're kind of like you know. You're like the consultant or the contractor. You know, you just come in, you swoop in, manage the problem, fix it, send it out the door. Yep, I like and that. And it's it's been working really well. I I was surprised at how uh, easy it's been to get companies to say yes to that because um, I w didn't quite expect like if I was running a company, I wouldn't necessarily jump at the bit at saying like this full time position that we want we want a contractor for it. But you know, from their perspective, like it's a lot lower risk in the sense that if I don't work out for them, they can chuck me out the door and they don't have to worry about severance pay or they don't have to worry about canceling my health care benefits or anything like that. They don't need like a super strong team culture fit or anything. Uh, it's it's actually like once you once you kind of talk to them and you know explain what you have to offer, it's actually more appealing to them than they realize. So sometimes they'll actually bite at that and that works out. Well, and I guess, you know, the time that they're looking for someone, the work still needs to be done. Right. So yeah, the the uh, in in startup mode, like in in Silicon Valley companies, you know, time is everything. And a lot of these companies, they raise a whole bunch of money, and they have a problem that needs to be solved, and they have no one to solve it, or they have the founder working by themselves to solve it. And you know that that can work for some companies, especially very early stage companies, but. Um, I come to them and basically say, like, here's what I've shipped, and here's how I work with people. And if this is appealing to you, like, we can get started tomorrow. And you know, for a lot of for a lot of them, that's something that you know they get hesitant about, or they want somebody that's going to commit to them for a very long time. But for some of them, they're just like, sure, we need we need to get this product out the door, and that's more important. So, 
you know, that ends up being an appealing proposition to them once you kind of explain it to them more. Are you using the consultancy work as a way to provide you with an income so you can work on your own stuff too? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I love working on a number of projects. Like that's to me the most interesting thing about contract or uh, being a consultant is basically being able to work on four or five different apps at a time. Like I've got three main uh, clients right now, and then I've got sort of two pro two big projects that I'm working on on my own. And the uh, the ability to do that and manage your time well is uh, something I had to learn. But once you got it kind of in the rhythm of doing that, then you know, it actually freed up a lot of time compared to what you might see at a typical startup. So having the sort of time constraints that are baked into being a contractor means, you know, I get, I get a pretty strict work schedule that I can then take and apply to other projects, which I now have way more time to work on and, you know, far more, um, far more, I guess what we call it, the just the energy at the end of the day to actually finish them and work on them and, you know, keep that ball rolling. So are you splitting it into like, you know, I do one day a week at this place, one day a week at this place that I work my evenings doing my own stuff or do you like separate them all out into separate days? How does that sort of timetable look for you? Well, when you're working with clients, um, you typically need to talk to them during business hours. So, uh, because, you know, when they leave the office for the day, they don't want to talk about work. So they typically want to talk to you, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to seven kind of timeline. So if you can get a, you know, if you can talk to them during that time and basically set the direction for what you want or for what they want you to do, once you kind of get that in place, then it's just a matter of like, okay, I need to work three hours for this client today and I need to work four hours over the weekend for this client and do this, that, and the other thing. Um, in general, it's pretty much dependent on which company I'm working for at any given time, like the the shots guys, they have they have me working in their in their office most of the time. So from that perspective, like I'm actually in an office building working side to side with them. Mm -hmm. But for some of the other clients who I can't name, um, they you know they're far more flexible and they don't they don't necessarily care so much about having a specific hour or a specific day or a specific location. It's more about, you know, we have this thing we need to get done in the next month, just get it done. So from that, it's it's more on me to balance the time of when I'm going to work on company X, company Y, company Z. But once you get all of that stuff figured out and you're sort of scheduling all of that correctly, uh, you end up with a lot more time than you would if you were kind of constantly on call, which is how you generally live when you're working in a startup full time. What are the types of things that we can expect to see coming from the indie Steve Strezza? Well, um, I'm working on some more consumer apps uh, that are, uh, by and large, driven by server components, which has been a totally different learning experience because I've never actually built a product that has its own sort of server cloud infrastructure kind of thing. And uh, a lot of my time for the last six months has been spent learning how to do DevOpsy kind of things where you're not just like putting code on a server, you're learning how to make servers talk to each other, you're learning how to scale stuff, you're learning how to detect when there's problems and get notified with that. So uh, a lot of that time has been spent just understanding how to do DevOps roles so you can keep a 
cloud service running and you know not have to worry about it falling over because somebody loaded up 10,000 things uh, or whatever it is. So um, I'm working on sort of a big project. I've actually been working on that for over a year now. Um, and hopefully I can get it out sometime soon. But the big, the big problem with that has just been getting the sort of server infrastructure up and running. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. I'm also working a little bit on uh, a developer tool, which is going to be, I think, very beneficial. They, they, uh, they had a saying during the gold rush, which is uh, the only people, or maybe after the gold rush, the only people who made money during the gold rush were the people selling the shovels. <laughs> and so from that perspective, I'm taking that to mean like, well, if we, we can sell something to a developer and, and save them some time, they're, they're is probably a market there that will pay for that, and that is uh, something that I've been interested in. But nothing, ex nothing like what I'm planning seems to exist. And every company that I've ever worked for, or every client that I've ever had, has needed a solution similar to this. So that tells me that there's something mm -hmm. there. I'm not quite ready to talk about it just yet, but and it, will <laughs> it only should cost be a good one. One million dollars. One million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, what platforms are you developing on? Are they just Apple platforms? Are you, are you and and obviously the web, as you mentioned, right? But are you go are you branching outside that at all at the moment, or thinking about doing that? Um, I'm I'm primarily doing iOS and Mac. Uh, I'm also obviously doing not just web, but the server aspect of it, and some of that is in Node.js or it's in Python or it's in Go or whatever it is, but those languages. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to branch a little bit into Android development. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is I really like Android conceptually. Like I've, I carry an Android phone now and I use it on a day-to-day -day basis alongside an iPhone because I'm crazy like that. Yep. And also because, uh, you know, I want to build my own products for it, but I also want to be able to go to companies and say, you know, I can build your iOS app. I can also build your Android app. And just being able to market myself as a developer on both the mobile platforms that matter is probably something that is just going to, you know, make it much easier for me to find work. Yeah. It's more of an investment in the future for that. You're doubling the amount of platforms that you can work on, you know, on right. mobile, which is I guess is really important. Yeah. So I want to take a, a quick second for, for another break and then I've got some stuff that I want to ask you and also some stuff about Android too. Cool. I'm interested in that. So I want to welcome a new sponsor to Command Space, and that is New Relic. New Relic is a real-time application monitoring system that gives you the best insight to monitor and improve the performance of your applications. New Relic is the only dashboard you need to keep an eye on application health and availability. Real user monitoring, server utilization, code level diagnostics, and more. You can get direct visibility into your Ruby, PHP, Java, .NET, Python, and Node.js apps. New Relic is a better way to monitor and boost performance for your entire web app environment. Complete visibility anytime you want it. With over 75,000 actively connected accounts and more than 202 billion metrics captured daily across 2 million applications, it's not hard to see why New Relic is the best out there. So head on over to newrelic.com, that's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C.com to learn more and sign up for a free account. No credit card required, no commitment, and let New Relic help you make more reliable web and mobile applications. Thank you so much to New Relic for supporting 5x5 and Command Space. That was like a perfect segue. I'm almost proud of myself 
<laughs> it's actually funny that they're a sponsor now because I've been using New Relic as one of my tools for doing server monitoring. I'm going to take that as a personal endorsement, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds good. So iOS 7, I mean, I know iOS 7 has been around for some time, but I still feel like the fallout is still affecting developers. You know, the way that iOS 7, uh, from a design perspective and development perspective, has changed the way that people work. How, like, what is your opinion now from a technical design perspective for how iOS 7 has changed you as a developer, if it has at all? Well, uh, there are definitely technical issues that I run into almost daily with iOS 7. It's pretty buggy from a developer perspective still. Um, and I'm sure they're going to fix these things over time. Uh, a lot of those are related to sort of helping apps migrate from iOS 6 to iOS 7. They kind of did a whole bunch of things in an automatic sense uh, where they would like, for example, the, the navigation bar, it now extends up under the status bar. And there's all kinds of bugs that happen if you try to do anything with that. There's all these custom transition APIs that are new in iOS 7 that, you know, they didn't necessarily find all of the bugs with. And that's part of just, you know, doing a big UI overhaul is that, you know, there's what, a million apps on the App Store now or whatever it is. They're going to have bugs and yeah. you're going to have to deal with them. But, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. I think from a design perspective, I think we're still trying to figure out what it means. I think Apple's still trying to figure this out. It's trying to figure out what it means to work in this environment and build a really well-designed app. Uh, some of the design changes that they seem to be making in iOS 7.1, um, you know, maybe walking back a little bit of more some of the more extreme changes they made, like uh, some of the borders around buttons and things like that. Yeah. That That is very telling about you know, the fact that even Apple doesn't know where this is going. So uh, it's a natural kind of evolutionary thing, and I think we're all still trying to figure it out. I think one of the biggest things for me personally has been about how do you take color and make it – how do you manipulate color in such a way that it does the thing you want? Whereas before we might have animated the physical object of like a button or something – uh, I think a far more interesting thing to be thinking about is like how do we manipulate color and make that part of the experience like in the uh, for example like in the remote app uh, if you hit the now playing button it shows you the label of what is playing and it shows you the album art but it shows you a blurred version of the album art in the background and the label that it shows is actually extracting color from the appropriate place in the in the background of the album art and using that as the color and bringing that forward and some of the apps that have seen like uh, I think Castro the podcast app I think they did something similar where they're not just using uh, a standard color for everything they're actually manipulating the colors of the background as as you use the app and if you use that tastefully and if you use that in the right kind of ways you can build really interesting user ex uh, user interfaces based on sort of the color of content that you're actually referring to. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about iOS 7 is just like they put such an emphasis on getting rid of all of this ornamentation and kind of making it about content. You really have to take that to its next step and just say like, you know, the content is very much image-based or it's very much video-based. How much of your UI can you derive from those images and how much of it can you design to work with those images really well? And manipulating the color of those images has been something that I've been playing a lot with. Like the Shots mm. of Me app is all about color. There's very little 
chrome going on there. It's all about, you know, making colors brighter or darker based on whether it's a background element or a foreground element or playing with how blurs uh, of images uh, interact with the text of the image. Stuff like that, like, has been very interesting. I think a lot of developers are still trying to figure out all of this stuff. But I think the biggest thing that we're still kind of trying to figure out is how do you bring identity back yes, uh, yes, to applications? Yes. The, the whole thing with iOS 6 and with those heavily textured interfaces was, you know, if you were in, if you opened Game Center and you saw that green felt, you knew you're in Game Center. You may not think it's the pretty interface or the prettiest interface in the world, but you knew you were in Game Center. And, you know, if you went into iBooks, it has those, uh, those bookshelves. You know you're in iBooks, right? How do we get back to that? How do we, how do we convey that, that sense of identity in our apps? I think that is still the biggest unknown in terms of how do we bring that into the, the, the next realm. Like TweetBot, for example. You knew you were in TweetBot in iOS 6, but in iOS 7, a lot of that stuff has become blurred, and it's very difficult to, to tell the difference between... Uh, Tweetbot and say Twitterific just by looking at them, and that I think is is the biggest challenge. I don't know whether that is good or bad for the user. I'm still kind of waffling on that one because in a sense you don't want to think about what app you're in. You want the app to solve a problem for you, so you don't need Tweetbot to be in your face all the time and reminding you, hey, you're in Tweetbot. You really just need to be able to read Twitter, uh, and that's interesting from a design perspective, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the best thing from a company developing an app perspective, if that makes sense. I think we're, just, I think we're still quite early in, in you know, the life cycle of iOS 7, and maybe if you think about the original iPhone, the, the layout didn't really, the design, sorry, the overall design language didn't change that much between iOS 1 and 6. So, I guess, you know, the way that people thought about the way those apps would designed and developed changed over time and that potentially we're too early on in the life cycle for people to push the new conventions to their logical end and then go past them yeah the ios like in the in the very early days of the app store there were what a few thousand apps and there wasn't a whole lot of competition and so you know people needed to get their apps out quickly so they just stuck with the standard elements and over time it became difficult to differentiate between your apps and one of the ways that you did that was through visual metaphors and you know, over time that led to the proliferation of visual metaphors as being a representation of identity and I'm sure we'll get back to that I'm sure that's going to be something that we're going to figure out collectively as a developer group uh, over the next you know six to twelve months but I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't already started to happen uh, some of the companies that are doing things like Twitter and uh, they're, they're using color primarily as their means of identity and that works to an extent but uh, see that was like that was Apple's sort of solution was you know to use color as a highlight but really that only works for brands like big brands right if your brand has a well-known color if you're if you're Twitter or if you're Tumblr or if you're Facebook, or like Yelp you've got that. Or something. Yeah, you've yeah. got that strong color representation that's associated with your brand. That helps a lot. But if you're just, you know, throwing a new app out there and you don't have a big brand behind you, you've got, you know, you're fighting against a, the fact that nobody knows who you are and you've got to differentiate yourself somehow. So I want to talk about Android before we wrap up the show. So, sure. Um, 
my understanding, if I remember right, you have purchased a HTC One and an Nexus Five, right? You bought the Play Edition One, I think. Yeah, I got the Play Edition One and the Nexus Five. Both of those have, <clears throat> excuse me, both of those have the standard Android experience. They don't have any uh, vendor installed nonsense on them. It's just pure Android all the way through. Why did you want to to look at Android? Why did you buy these phones? Uh, well, I bought them in the first place because, like I said, I wanted to get into Android development. That's a skill that I want to have. So, uh, like, as I was saying, there is so much more of a market in free-to-play apps now, and that's a huge part of Android's market share is coming from free-to-play apps. Or I'm sorry, a huge part of Android sales in terms of their Play Store is going through free-to-play apps. So, from that, like, it makes sense if you're going to put... Uh, you know, an app on one platform and you're going to put an app on another platform, like you can get more money that way. So from that perspective, it makes sense. But also wanting to do contract work. So I got the Android phone so I could just start playing with them because the developer tools for Android, they're good, but they're nothing. Uh, let me let me phrase that. The, the simulator that you have on iOS is really good. The emulator that you get on Android is really, really slow. And there's things you can do to work around that. But uh, in general, it's not something like you don't do most of your development in Android and the emulator. Like I know very few developers who do that. Everybody says just put it on a device. So I got the device so I could have something to actually do quick development on. And then I just started using it uh, as like a day-to-day thing. And I just started really liking it. Now, part of that is because Android caters a bit more in how it's designed to people who want more flexibility, who want to tinker. I think a big part of the Android experience for me has been in just tinkering with things and like swapping out entire pieces of the OS with something else or playing with the sort of automation tools that you can do with uh, Android. So, you know, it's not necessarily for everyone. And in general, if you're like, very focused on the aesthetic design side of things, you're probably going to have a little bit better of a time on iOS. But, man, Android got good uh, relative to what it was. It got really good in a big hurry in the last few releases of Android. So I've been carrying both the iPhone and the Android phone, partially because I'm developing for both of them and partially because I'm just insane. (laughs) What do you like about... um Android that you'd like to see come to iOS 7 at some point or to iOS, sorry. I would say the biggest thing is just the integration that you can set up between apps. So, for example, when I'm reading Twitter on my Android phone and I come across an Instagram link uh, and I tap that Instagram link, it doesn't open the Instagram web page. It opens into the Instagram app where I'm already logged in. I've got everything. I can do exactly what I would if I had found that picture through Instagram. Yep. And then you press and the back button and go back to Twitter. Exactly. So, so awesome. you can set up all kinds of stuff to integrate this way. You can set up things to open whatever Twitter app you want. So if you don't, you know, if you run into a Twitter link somewhere else, like if you open it in Chrome or something, you can have it go to the uh, the Twitter app the official one, or you can have it go to one of the third-party ones. Like, you can route things this way, and you can set up your own defaults to do this stuff. Um, and the thing is, this is all built into the OS. This isn't, like, through a, a couple of wild developers creating callback URLs. This is just baked in and supported by everybody. This is how that OS is yeah. designed. And, you know, that 
is it's, it's a subtle thing with how well that works, but it's also really really useful. That was one. I think that's one of my favorite things. One of my other things that I loved was the way that apps updated in the background, which iOS now does to a point, I guess, mm-hmm. which is which is great. I love that. So that's I would say probably my most the most the thing I miss the most about Android on iOS. The second thing I would say is that notifications on Android are useful in a way that they just aren't on iOS. So on an Android phone as of, I think, 4.2, they made the notification center really rich. So where on iOS you have just a list of, you know, these apps had these recent notifications and you open the app and uh, you have to find them and clear them out and all this stuff and it just becomes a big mess and if you're like me you don't ever go and clear out your notification center on iOS and so you have just this giant backlog of old stuff Uh, on Android notifications will group themselves together and they can have contextually aware buttons so you know your your Twitter app it'll show you a, a new push notification for a mention that you get and you can tap on it to open the Twitter app to that notification but you can also just hit the reply button from that notification and it pops a little text field you just type in your message you hit send and the whole thing goes away and you're back to whatever you were doing the same is true for you know uh, texting or for email or for whatever Um, they put your music player stuff in there with big bright album art all this kind of stuff like you can do a whole lot with notifications as a developer on Android whereas with iOS it's pretty much just you get a text field and a button that says like open the app to do whatever and that's a subtle thing that you know just takes a couple steps out of the out of the process. But when you actually have it running on a device, it's really nice to have all of that stuff because you can quickly do something and get back to what you were doing. Yeah, I, I love all that sort of stuff. Like the contextual buttons and the the actionable notifications. It's just so it's just it's just a great thing. And and I really hoped that it was going to come to iOS. You know, like when they put like the tweet button. The tweet, the ability to tweet from in iOS six, right? Right. From notification center, which is now gone from iOS seven. I thought <laughs> that that might have been the start, but but no. Just give me the option to swipe away notifications would be awesome. Yeah, you know? something like that. Rather than hunting for the tiny, tiny, tiny like button that's just. Anyway. I've mispressed that button so many times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what stops you from using Android full time? Um. Well, the. Primary function that I use for a phone these days is not for a phone. It's for text-based communication, Twitter, email, that kind of stuff. The email app they have on Android is great. All of the Twitter apps are pretty bad, uh, and the same is true for App.net apps, and the same is true for you know Facebook and Tumblr. They're all just not very good. Uh, I just don't find myself wanting to use them. They're slow. They don't update right, or they have bad data, or this, that, and the other thing. Like there's just little issues that come up. So for me, it's more about like the core set of apps that I use are just a little better on iOS. But with that said, there are more obscure apps that you just can't do on iOS that you can do on Android. One of those is, uh, is this app called Tasker for Android. And what it lets you do is like all of these really crazy automation things. So for example, when I get, when I get home from wherever I am, the phone will detect that I am on my home Wi-Fi. And as a result, I have it set up in this app where when it connects to my home Wi-Fi, it will automatically unsilence my phone. It will turn off the password lock. 
it will send a, a message to my light, like my Philips Hue light bulbs to turn on. It will <laughs> do all of this crazy stuff. And then when I leave, it has a whole different set of rules that it does where it turns the passcode lock back on and turns silent mode back on. When I plug in headphones, it will set the volume to a known level and automatically open Spotify because that's probably what I'm going to be listening to with the headphones. And you can set up all of these crazy rules and it just makes you just take steps out of like what you would have to do on iOS because on iOS you have to open the thing and you have to turn silent mode on with the switch and maybe you have to turn on night mode if I'm going to a client's office and I don't want my phone buzzing all day or if I'm plugging my headphones I have to turn the volume down and then go and find Spotify and then open it and do all of this stuff and it just gets in your way a lot of the time and when you start building automation workflows that get uh, you know that just fix all of these little problems that you have they're just subtle little things very well mm -hmm. when you get in that mindset and when you start working like Vitici would love this oh. um, yeah, when you get in that mindset like everything just becomes easy and then when you take that away it it just hurts like you feel every minor little step you have to do as a pain point because you know on this other thing it just all works but the other thing has all of these different trade-offs so you know, it's it's been a back and forth thing where like some days I'll use the iPhone all day, some days I'll use the Android phone all day, some days I'll mix and match. Uh, I don't know if I could ever really go back to just having just an iPhone, or if I could ever fully switch to being just Android. But then again, I'm a crazy nerd, so <laughs> like that's just the way that I've got my kind of workflow set up. You speak in my language. <laughs> I, 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 once, once you get used to it, it's it's a lot of fun, and part of it is you know. There's uh, almost like a meditative joy or serenity that comes with being able to just play with this stuff and see how it works out. And if it doesn't work out, you get rid of it. Or if it does work, you add to it. And, you know, if you're a tinkerer, if you like playing with the stuff for the sake of making it better, mm -hmm. you have a lot of fun with it. If you're just like, I just want to, you know, plug in my headphones and hit the music app and hit play. If that's the mindset that you have, you're not going to like this at all. But if you enjoy the process of tinkering as like, a hobby or as a way of making your life better, this is so much fun. And it's just, it's been really rewarding from that perspective. Plus, it just makes your life a whole lot better in a lot of little subtle ways. So thank you so much, sir. Thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute sure. pleasure having you on the show. Steve, where can people go and they can keep updated with what you're up to? Well, you can find me on Twitter and on app.net. My username is Steve Streza, all one word. And you can find my website at stevestreza.com, which I never update. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. You can find links to everything we've discussed today, including where to find Steve, over at 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 79. I am Mike Hurley. I am at iMike. I am YKE. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. Thank you to Mr. Streza for joining me, and I'll be back next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>